Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We've got certifications coming up journal club meetings, and much more within the Clinical Athlete Forum, so check it out. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. If the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, On this show, we are joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who was an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. This episode is part two of our conversation with Dr. Rich Willie regarding the current clinical practice guidelines for patellofemoral pain. Dr. Rich Willie is an assistant professor at the University of Montana's School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science. His research focuses on the treatment of runners and tactical athletes with patellofemoral pain, Achilles tendon injuries, and bone stress injuries. He is well-published in the field of uh, running medicine, using both his biomechanical and clinical knowledge to progress our understanding of how to rehabilitate runners. If you haven't yet listened to part one, we highly suggest you do that. If you have, we're jumping right back into the second half of the discussion here. We hope you enjoy it. As we talked about that very point that John made on the journal club, we actually did a clinical athlete journal club on this paper, and we were wondering that too, are these categories meant to be mutually exclusive? Are they considering somebody who all things held equal, this person is muscle performance, this person is mobility, this person is, yeah, but we know clinically there's like John said, and like you said, Rich, you know, our management is encompassing all sorts of different things. And that flow chart that you were referring to, just for the listeners, it's on page 45 uh, of the paper. And you can see it's exactly what you're talking about. They all, all four of those classification systems go right into one arrow uh, for, mm-hmm. for treatment recommendations. And do we need to get rid of the, the why this is happening question then? You know, if we if we're saying patellofemoral pain is actually what's probably feeding the muscular impairments, for example, we're still left with the well. Why did we develop patellofemoral pain in the first place? Are there just too many factors to to try to answer that question? Should we just say it doesn't it doesn't matter? You have it now, or. or mm-hmm. you, yeah, no, I think that's a good question. So, yeah, it bears, uh, you know, being being really clear about this. We we don't really know why people get patellofemoral pain. You know, we have an idea. Um, 
you know, but there's no single one factor why people get patellofemoral pain. Um, there, it's probably like most things, there's a, you know, a kind of mishmash of um, psychosocial factors, um, training load, um, tissue quality, movement quality, uh, if you will. Um, and yeah, I think all those things kind of, kind of come together. And for some people, the psychosocial component might, might play a much larger role, uh, than in others. Um, and other folks, and I work with, you know, I work with a lot of professional athletes and professional runners and, um, the psychosocial component for them, um, they're, they're not, they don't have the typical kind of like you know, kinesiophobia or some of the other things that you might see in, in other populations that I treat, they have psychosocial or a psychosocial thing going on. That's a much different, their livelihood depends on their ability to train at a high level. So, um, for some people it's, those things change a lot and, and quad strength is another one of those too. Like, um, I think that like, like we said with our military, it, quad strength really makes a big difference. If you're going to go into the military, you should be spending a lot of time in the gym, making your quads really strong. And they're also, those folks are at high risk for other injuries like tibial stress fractures. You should be doing a lot of strength training for your plantar flexors. Um, may not be as important um, in other populations. The You mentioned the biopsychosocial aspect of these things, and that's always that kind of elephant in the room topic, or it seems to be there, where it's, it's just there. And one can make an argument that we actually talked about it in the journal club, like there could be another classification, you know, who fits into that bucket and is going to affect treatment. But we then kind of talked about, it's kind of more of an overarching thing and, and it's, this is a sliding scale on who's more affected by those types of things. But specifically with that concept in mind, the rating of pain using something like a visual analog scale, or a numeric pain rating scale where we're having the person, you know, explicitly rate their pain, score their pain, kind of think about it perhaps right. multiple times through a session or through a plan of care. Is there any, is there any pause on that f for somebody who would be maybe more predisposed to perseverating on something like that in a negative way? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think with any, whether it be lumbar spine or, you know, have you, and I think that a lot of folks will cause call patellofemoral pain, the, the, the low back pain of the lower extremity. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a, that's a really good, uh, analogy there. And, and so much so that, um, there's, there's some, and I think it's, there's a pretty good argument there, not even to call it patellofemoral pain anymore, to call it anterior knee pain. Um, because we, we don't even really know where the pain is coming from when it comes to patellofemoral pain. You know, we know, we, we suspect that maybe it's coming from maybe the, uh, you know, the subchondral bone, you know, or maybe the synovium or the infrapatellar fat pad, you know, we, you know, we think that, but we actually don't even know where that pain is coming from. So to sit there and like constantly assess pain in a patient, um, that's the, that's the clinician probably being overly worried about, um, tissue damage. And as we already mentioned earlier, that this is not an injury that is really predicted or the severity is determined by, by some sort of imaging. And, um, so yeah, I, I would say that's probably not a good idea, um, for a lot of patients. Of course, you still want to check in because, uh, on that stuff, but I, I would kind of be very sneaky about it rather than letting it drive what you're doing with your patient. Um, and, and I want to go back to that psychosocial thing too, because, you know, one of the groups that I work with a lot are, 
adolescent athletes, particularly adolescent runners. And I think that that psychosocial component is, is um, super impactful in that group, that if you come from a uh, culture or, um, you know, your friends and family believe that, you know, you run, if you're running, you're going to ruin your knees. And then if you're a high school runner, you're probably going to get some sort of patellofemoral discomfort at some point. And then suddenly you're like, you start getting that pain and now you're like, well, of course I'm ruining my knees because I'm running. And then those folks then take the next step instead of, you know, a lot of those folks will then will back off on the amount that they're running and the amount that they're exercising, thinking that they're doing damage to their knees. And as we clearly point out in the CPG that the the standard of care for patellofemoral pain is is exercise therapy. And 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 our our clinic, when someone comes in with patellofemoral pain, we do whatever we can to keep them as active as possible. Um, and um, because we want to try to counter that that kind of that inner narrative for that person. Um, yeah, I think it's super important. With the discussion around the psychosocial component there, um, one thing that I know I've struggled with in the past is not just with patellofemoral pain, but with, with a few different conditions, someone who I think has a particular thing and then they'll ask me, okay, is this going to happen again? And do I have to expect that this is going to happen in the future? And reading the paper, I was surprised to see the uh, recurrence stats and the, the um, kind of the persistence in terms of how long patellofemoral pain seems to last in, in some people. So I think that could be a challenge for clinicians, whether new or, or seasoned. If you've got that person in front of you saying, like, am I going to be having this for a long time? What I seem to f- have found helpful lately has just been saying that, um, you know, yeah, there's a chance, being honest, certainly not lying to them, uh, that yeah, this could happen in the future. Uh, but then again, it, it could have happened to someone who's never had this in the past before. And then I think, Quinn, I might have heard you say this, but we want to try to control the controllables and not invalidate their concern because like you said, depending on who they are and what this is affecting, this could have massive ramifications for, for what they do and what they like to do and, you know, things that they may not be able to engage in to the extent they want to, but try to bring them back into a, all right, we're here now, here, here are things we can work on. And, you know, I'm with mm-hmm. you. We're going to tag team it. Um, do you have any things that you found helpful as a clinician and as a researcher to address that? Yeah, I think, uh, well, you know, patellofemoral pain, I mean, it's worth saying that that's not really a lot different than other, you know, these relative overuse injuries like Achilles tendinopathy. I mean, the recurrence rate for Achilles tendinopathy is also around 50, I think it's 48%, I think if I remember correctly, from a, um, you know, when you're looking at the um, kind of most recent, you know, publications in that area. Um, so it, it's not it's not a ton different. Um so I think that that's what we're saying. And so one of the things I think is that when I talk to patients is that, look, you, you know, um, first off, it's not going to go away on its own. And I think that's really important. And if you're, if you're a parent, um, and you have a child, you know, adolescent who has patellofemoral pain, uh, it's not going to be something that they're going to outgrow. It's not what we consider to be a self-limiting condition. Um, and I think that the people who probably need to hear that message the most are family practitioners, so your family, your family doctor, uh, because a lot of times, uh, they might, they might come in and say, Hey, I've got, Patellofemoral. My daughter has patellofemoral pain. My son has it, and the the doctors say, "Well, they'll just outgrow it." But we know that it it, it persists and it goes on into adulthood. Um, but when I'm working with a patient who does have patellofemoral pain, one of the things I tell them is, "Look, we're going to do we're going to try to come up with the best treatment plan that we have, or that we that we can come up with together." And um, but understand that in the future, when you do too much too soon, that's relative overload for you. That that or that training overload is going to probably manifest itself in your knee. 
And it's not necessarily that you've got this persistent knee injury. It's just that when you're going to get an injury that, um, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to be knee pain. And, um, I, I don't know, we, you know, we don't really know why that is. There's probably a, you know, a tissue, tissue quality component to it that we just don't, we don't appreciate at this, at this stage. Um, but you need to be honest with your patient and say that, um, this is a condition that, uh, we're starting to get a better grasp on. We don't really understand it. Um, particularly well, as I said, we don't even really understand one causative factor for it. Um, and at the same time, you need to kind of go walk backward and try to recreate why that person got that injury and say, well, this is what happened. And, you know, I think this maybe is what sets you up for this. We just need to be really cautious about those kinds of mistakes in the future. And then to add to that, we're, we talk about this a lot uh, on the podcast. We're trying to build resilience, not just physically, obviously that, but, but also Mm -hmm. psychologically and emotionally. So, you know, what you said there, trying to identify why this might've happened to the, the, uh, the parameters are the things that, that seem relevant in this case, especially if they're going to continue to be relevant. If it's running volume or you know, training workload in the gym or something like that to equip the, the person with the ability to, you know, feel those symptoms and not immediately become super distressed, but recognize, okay, this is a thing I've dealt with this before. Um, these are the, my go-tos that I'll try to assess and, and figure out, did I push it too far with X, Y, or Z or all three? Um, and then these are the steps that I'll take to, to manage it, you know, and, and by giving them those tools, they probably feel more uh, self-efficacious. And then that probably limits the, the chances or reduces the chances that they're going to be in a really rough spot in the future because of this. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I totally. I, I think that, you know, when you go back to it, when you're treating a patient, I think if you're a patient... It, going through the rehab process, if you don't get any sort of um, exacerbation or irritation of the patellofemoral joint, um, I would tell you that you're under-treating your patient. And um, and I think that we as physical therapists, um, we kind of have, or there's a lot of criticism from other professions and other fields that we, we do under-treat, and I'm not going to, I wouldn't argue that at all. Um, and so for me, when I'm treating a patient, my goal once I've won their you know, kind of won their trust and earn it, earned it is, and I tell them this right front, the goal here is to try to get you, try to figure out when we get you right to the edge of that razor from our progression standpoint, where if we do just a little bit more, you get an exacerbation. And then, then we know that we're pushing you, we're progressing you at an appropriate rate. And then, so then that's feedback for me, it's feedback for the patient. But the other reason why I really like having that happen, that, and this extends to other injuries, not just patellofemoral pain, so Achilles tendinopathy is a great example, is that then they can see that when they get their pain, that then we can work through it together and come up with a, you know, some sort of strategy that, because it's invariably going to happen to them again, so that they know how to recover from it. And um, if you're not doing that with your patient, I think you're... You know, I, I think you probably have a, a false sense of uh, confidence in your ability to treat patellofemoral pain. I think that your patient is um, going to walk out of your clinic feeling pretty good, and then they're going to go back and they're going to probably create and uh, commit the same, um, maybe whatever things that happen that caused their injury from before, and they're just going to get injured again. And I really think that undertreating is why we are seeing such a high recurrence rate in patellofemoral pain. Is it safe to say with some of the stuff we're talking about here? Um, especially with patellofemoral pain and some of the tendinopathy type stuff after that long stream of conversation that this is, is somewhat a normal part of the training process and developing skill in training. You mean as far as 
patellofemoral pain in and of itself or having some musculoskeletal muscular, musculoskeletal stuff especially we take the the psychosocial aspect in it into account if you're really trying to push performance i mean there's still going to be some level of risk involved we're, we're not perfect with this stuff and it's incredibly difficult to predict outcomes especially if you're trying to bleed that razor, razor's edge of performance this stuff is going to happen um is it safe to say it's it's normal to some extent? Yeah, I would I would say so. I I mean I would say maybe I would say maybe patellofemoral pain is not necessarily you know quote unquote normal, but I would say that yeah, some sort of musculoskeletal injury is going to it's just going to occur if you're going to manifest differently in everybody. Yeah, you're you're not going to get you're not going to get a tibial stress fracture laying on the couch. You know, you're not going to get probably not going to get Achilles tendinopathy laying on the couch either. You know, you're going to get it from from exercising. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why you look at injury prevention programs and and runners, for instance, um, they've largely failed. I mean, most of them have not been very they're they're not not most of them. I think almost every one of them has not been successful uh, in reducing the rate of injuries and runners. I think it's just one of those things that just happens. And um you know, where you get that injury, I think, is dependent on things like your tissue quality, um, localized tissue quality, and your movement patterns and your pain beliefs. But I think that's important to communicate as well, because if people think that it's completely abnormal and it, it you get a high, such a high recurrence rate, then they can catastrophize. Oh, no, I screwed up again. I didn't do X, Y, Z right. It's like, no, okay. I know what to do. Like, like Jared was saying, been through this, know what to do. It's part of the process. I'm going to scale things the way I need to, to work it. I'm going to talk to you, to, to you guys, and I'm going to just keep on moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a healthier approach. It is a way healthier approach. Yeah, And I, I think we need to be careful, you know, going back, is we need to, we need to be careful not to overpromise in what we're doing with our, with our physical therapy because, um, you know, this is a condition where that we're, we're, we're helping the athlete manage we're not curing them of patellofemoral pain. So I think management of patellofemoral pain, I think is probably a better term than, than the, you know, the treatment of patellofemoral pain, because, um, if you go back and make some of those same missteps, it's, it's probably going to come back. Say that again, but louder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly what, yeah, we're managing, we're managers. I think that's what Jared was saying. I think too, is they come to see us because they've, their condition has become unmanageable. They don't have solutions. Yeah. They don't have answers. If we can provide them with what Jared said, a plan A, a plan B, plan C, you know, some things to fall back on, um, then you, then they have the ability to manage. And there, I feel that people are, when you set the expectation like that up front, they're much more welcoming of that than if you make some promise of being pain free at some arbitrary cutoff point six to eight weeks down the line when they've been dealing with this thing for two or three years or longer they're they're much more apt to accept okay yes i if i can keep my function high and do what i want to do and this thing comes up every now and then and i have i have some tools to to manage it yeah a lot of people are happy with that yeah no real fix secure you know, and I'm, I'm looking at this model, or I call it a model here on, on page 45, the classification system. And I know it's set up to be more of a bucket, um, but it's like, are we bucketing based on diagnosis or intervention? We don't really know yet. But at least I'm looking at this thing as almost like a checklist. You know, f- maybe the overload is almost that priority one, because even if 
being strong is a little bit arbitrary. You can always overload your current capacity. The strongest man or strongest woman in the world has a threshold. So you can always surpass your current capacity. So like you're ticking the box off of managing workload. And then you can kind of drop it down to say, well, how are we doing in regards to force production, the ability to absorb and to tolerate load and to produce force? We take that box off in regards to addressing strength in both the, the knee and the hip. And then we say, well, you know, we can always look to optimize mechanics, even you know, for performance. And if it also allows you to distribute forces differently and helps your knee feel a little bit better, well, we'll look at your mechanics too when you run or when you do a squat or when you do a step down. So, you know, I see these classifications as not necessarily mutually exclusive, but more as like just little checklists to kind of go down and see what see what we can address, see what we can control. The mobility classification I'm I'm just trying to ignore and pretend it's not even there. But uh, the other three I like. <laughs> I, you know, and as we talked before we started recording, I, I, I listened to the, the podcast you guys did on the on the Journal Club. And uh, yeah, I mean, some of those are, you know, IT band flexibility, for instance, you know, so I don't know where that fits in. So, but uh, I mean, is that a mental model that that makes a little bit of sense? Because that's really all we're trying to do here is we're trying to conceptualize some type of framework to go off of when we're when we're managing this person in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think that basically it's trying to tell you, first off, I mean, exercise therapy is the is the treatment of choice for patellofemoral pain. And we're very careful not to call it physical therapy because physical therapy means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And um, it all comes down to, you know, how can you work with your athlete to encourage, um, you know, self-management. And that's one of the reasons why I think when we're talking about the fact that patellofemoral pain is such a persistent issue that um, all these passive treatments are not effective. You know, things like dry needling and, um, you know, knee braces and, and certainly when and done in isolate manual therapy, for instance, um, those things are not effective. It's the exercise therapy. So coming up with the right and, and I'm looking over here at the classification system coming coming up with the right set of um you know, variables as far as your, your treatment plan is going to hopefully address those things, I think is, is a, is a good way to look at it. Um, you know, these are, again, it's a expert, expert opinion, um, uh, which is not, which is not me. It's uh, comes from a paper from Jim self, um, out of the UK. And, um, so we'll, we'll see, you know, I think the, the jury's out. I think the next step would be to do some sort of, um, randomized control trial to see and, and, you know, classify, you know, basically prescribe treatments based off how they fit into this classification system. Um, I think for me, clinically, that's what I'm going to wait for you know, before I start really changing the way I treat. I've got two other questions. One is going back to diagnosis. When we were kind of going through the exclude all other conditions that may cause anterior knee pain, which may end up being the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain in the future, as you as you mentioned, we might just start right. calling it anterior knee pain. But with that, especially with that said, you know, rule out fracture and, and you know, if, if something's really weird and not mechanically related and you think it's more insidious and obviously take action there. But when we talk about differentiating between things like patellotendinopathy or osgood slaughters, the actual management tends to look a lot more similar. So... When, in my mind, we use a diagnosis to, to drive a treatment, a specific treatment. So let's take patellofemoral pain and Osgood slaughters, for example. 
Is one of the main differences between those two diagnoses what you mentioned earlier in that Osgood slaughters is will go away with time, potentially, if you're dealing with an adolescent, whereas patellofemoral pain won't? Or the management's different between those two diagnoses specifically? Yeah, I, I would say the management's different there. Um, and, you know, because Osgood slaughters is an apophysitis. And so um, to me, that's a real that's a real workload injury. It's a, it's too much workload, um, for that athlete. And it's not something that you're going to probably exercise that patient out of. You're not going to strengthen that patient out of mm. Oshkut slaughters. Um, and so I, I would, I might, I might say there, there is a bit of a difference there. Um, with that said, um, the the teenage athlete with patellofemoral pain, um, we know that you probably need to treat them a little bit differently than the adult with patellofemoral pain. And, and again, there seems to be in that group, there, there seems to be a, a real training load component that's probably um, more important in the adolescent athlete uh, than the, the, the adult athlete. And I think that those things can be are, are super important. Uh, and again, I don't know entirely why that is other than, you know, the teenage athlete is probably going to be more involved in team sports. And so there's that lack of autonomy when it comes to training load. Um, and sports specialization is a, is a big issue. We know if you specialize in a single sport that you're going to have a much greater likelihood of or higher likelihood of developing patellofemoral pain. But you, we also know you're going to have a higher likelihood of developing Oshkut slaughters as well. So, um, so there, there are some, similar, some similarities there, but there's still a, a major, part, major part in the adolescent athlete for doing a strengthening program if you have patellofemoral pain. For Oshkut slaughters, I would say... Maybe maybe less so. So there is some distinctive important you know things that you want to do differently there. Patellar tendinopathy, you know, it's one of those things where like the devil's in the details. Like if you're treating patellofemoral pain, um, quadricep strengthening is what you want to be doing with them. You want to be probably coupling that with with some sort of hip strengthening. Um, but, um, if someone's particularly irritable in their patellofemoral joint and particularly if they have, um, if there's some, uh, some fear avoidance stuff going on, the best place to start is up at the hip doing lots of proximal strengthening with that person. Mm. Um, and then when you do start doing strengthening with that individual with patellofemoral pain, um, you know, you still want to be very cautious about certain knee positions to be in when you're loading that joint because we know those are going to load, uh, there's going to increase patellofemoral joint stress more so than others. So like doing terminal knee extension on a knee extension machine is probably not a great idea for someone who has patellofemoral pain because the patellofemoral joint stress is quite high there. But if you have patellar tendinopathy, it's a little different. There you really want to be loading the patellar tendon a lot. You know, lots of heavy, slow resistance training, um, and there the range of motion when you're that you're doing that in is not quite as important. So the the and I'm and I'm just kind of going back to what you're saying. The overall principles are the same, but the specifics are a little bit different. And I think that is why it's so important to make sure that um, you're distinguishing between patellofemoral pain versus Oshkut slaughters and um, patellar tendinopathy, for instance. There's some nuance in there. That makes sense. Yeah, it's the nuance. Exactly. Hey, guys. Quinn Hennick here. 
Consider this a little brain break from Rich Willie dropping knowledge. We'll get back to that in just a second. We wanted to let you know that we will be looking to begin scheduling our 2020 weightlifting and powerlifting certifications. So if you know of a willing facility who would like to host a clinical athlete barbell certification, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar hosts, and we will send all details. And one more quick announcement. We have recently launched the clinical athlete coaching program in which myself, John Flagg, and Jared Maynard, our head coaches, so, if you're an athlete or know of any athlete in need of coaching to be able to get back to or surpass their previous performance goals, head over to clinicalathlete.com for details. And now, back to the show. Switching gears, my other question was about orthotics and taping, just because it's a, it's a question that we get. And it's also, you know, if you look at the clinical practice guidelines, there's a... It may augment your exercise for a short period of time. Short period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the benefits or proposed benefits of something like an orthotic or a, a taping strategy in conjunction with your exercise program, it, can you talk a little bit about those two types of interventions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe I, I think this is always, a, in, in my, my opinion, a really, really fun and interesting topic when you were talking about taping. And when you look at patellofemoral joint bracing versus taping, bracing is not effective for people who have patellofemoral pain. Like the straps? But uh, like even like a, like a lateral J type brace okay. where you're trying to control lateral tracking. Uh, but patellar taping is helpful. And um, as you mentioned, in the, just in the short term, six to six to ten weeks of the when you first initiate physical therapy, but patellar bracing isn't. And to me, that's super fascinating because when you look at uh, MRI studies like the dynamic or kinematic MRI, where you can look at the patella tracking, um, kind of in real time when you're with an MRI, um, the brace actually does alter patellofemoral joint kinematics, but taping does not. But taping is effective. Which is super fascinating. That tells me that it probably doesn't make as much the the the, the tracking of the patellofemoral joint is probably not uh, a dominant feature of patellofemoral pain. If that if I you know if that makes sense. And so um, so taping does seem to help. But um, the way I kind of look at taping is that um, taping. Uh, I'm guessing you guys have all taped patients before. It's 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 not easy. It takes some time. You know, and just taking time away from the time you can be spending doing exercise training with these patients. So, um, if I have a patient who has a lot of painful knee extension, I'll try some patellar taping with them. If it makes a difference, great, we'll try it for a while. If it doesn't, I'm not going to have them keep doing it. It doesn't make sense to do it. It's a waste of time and um, it's not going to help them out. But um, I'm really clear with the patient that it's not, they don't need this, but it may be helpful. Um, the same thing with foot orthoses. I, I think that when you're looking at, you, you can't sit here and look at someone's foot and say that person's going to do really well with a foot orthosis. Um, you know, the best way to really determine if someone's going to do well with a foot orthosis for patellofemoral pain is have them do a single leg squat with and without the, that foot orthosis. And if it reduces their pain, awesome. Give it a go for a bit and see if it allows you to put more weight on that person to increase the load on that patellofemoral joint, increase the load on the on their hip musculature um, with the idea that around, again, six to 12 weeks, you start weaning that person out of that foot orthosis because it's not, it's not an essential part of your, of your training uh, or, your, or your, your rehab program. But that either taping or, or the foot orthosis in and of itself is not going to make any difference in that person's recovery. And that, that evidence is quite clear. Same thing with the brace. 
So also wearing a brace on the outside of your jeans does not help too. I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so th- those things don't help at all. Not in isolation seems like the big point there. And, you know, you'll tell patients that here's my hang up with taping and bracing is that I'll, we'll tell patients that be very, very clear. This is a short term strategy to get you kind of an entry point to get you into your loading program. The loading program is the meat and potatoes. But exactly. if they put that brace on and it feels nice, it's like they forget all that other stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like the tape or the brace. And if I just don't, if I don't do, I'm going to say brace, but I, uh, orthotic, okay. orthotic or taping. Yeah. Uh-huh. But if I, if I just don't do those things, then it's just not, it's not on the table. They haven't been exposed to it. They don't know what's an, even a thing. And they just, they focus on the loading. I've, I've just had those experiences where they just loved, they ended up loving the tape and stopped kind of stopped doing the exercise program, but then kind of like got confused as to why things aren't, it's just one of those extra pieces that I've shied away from just because you know what the end, the end game is going to not include those things. But Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's probably laziness on my part. No, Uh, I I totally agree. I, I totally agree. I think that I guess my, my bias is exercise therapy. Um, in the counseling with the athlete, um, because I think that anything that you do that is taking time away from, uh, exercise therapy for your patient is, um, time better spent doing those, doing the exercise therapy, you know? And that's why, like, when you look at these, what we call multimodal programs that have, like, maybe they have some sort of a, like a manual component to them. Maybe they have a foot orthosis component to them. The, the, the dominant, thing that you see in all those programs and because there's a lot of differences between the different studies is the exercise therapy. That's the thing that works. The other things are just kind of bells and whistles. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, self-efficacy and, and the management component of it. It's not going to be really helpful for your patient, uh, and, and the long term. And as you said, it, it can be self-defeating when you have a patient who becomes, who, who, you know, psychologically sees that as what's really helping them um, because we know that that's not really going to get them better. Does the taping All strategy modifiers. even matter? Oh, sorry, John. No, they're just, they're symptom modifiers. Uh, Greg Lehman talks about them a lot in, in his course is it, get them to exercise, get them loading, get them moving. Everything else is a symptom modifier. And then there's, there's risks involved there sometimes like Quinn's talking about making somebody reliant on a symptom modifier that is not really going to have an impact on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and me knowing that you're going to have to invest more time in the future in, in a conversation, knowing that we're going to have to have the conversation of kind of weaning them off of these other things. Like if you introduce it and you plan on taking it out, you're not going to be able to just take it away and not say anything to them. So you're, you're, you're automatically investing time into that more, into that intervention more so. And I'm always wondering with you were saying, Rich, where the tape didn't even change the tracking of the patella. And I've, you know, when you tape somebody's ankle, the, the tape breaks down after like 10 or 15 minutes anyway. And it's just this like sensory yeah. input that you get on your ankle. Does it even matter what technique we use? Can I just slap some tape over or under their, you know, kind of outlines their patellar joint with no rhyme or reason, but it's there. It's a sensory feedback. They see it would that potentially have the same effect? Could save time that way, so you're not trying to use this fancy taping technique. I don't know. Yeah. You know. You, you know, I know you're right. I mean, I think that, 
the the directionality of your taping technique, I think, is the least important thing. And I think, in fact, if you look at, uh, there have been a, a, at least two studies that I can think of that where they would do like sham taping or maybe even do a patellar glide laterally, which is the exact mm. opposite direction <laughs> of what you would theoretically want to do it, and that actually reduce pain more than the medial glide did. So I think like if you're going to be, you know, talk, we talk, you mentioned nuance earlier. If you're going to get in there and look at like the spin of patella and the tilt and the, all that stuff, um, that, and, and you think that your, your Luco tape is going to hold that patella with this massive quadricep pulling it, uh, you're kidding yourself. You're absolutely kidding yourself. It, it doesn't make any difference. It's that, it's that sensory stimulus, I believe, that, that really makes the difference there. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, and, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm super choosy in the person that I do taping with. I, uh, my, my bias is heavily towards exercise therapy and, and, you know, for the overwhelming majority of patients that I treat with patellofemoral pain, that's all I ended up having to do is the exercise therapy and, and the counseling. Yeah. I can't sit here and say that I, w- I, I don't, I've never thrown tape on somebody's knee. It's, it's like you said, it's, it's the person in front of me. It's what are they doing? They got a game in an hour. I'm not going to make their quad strong right now. Uh, it's like something, but I, you know, I know in the back of my head as I'm taping this knee, if they like it, it's going to be something that we have to address in the future. It's just something, you know, we got to take those things into account. And with the orthotic, just the point I want to bring up, it does not have to be a custom orthotic, right? Anything will do. No, uh, customer orthosis is no more effective than an off-the-shelf one. So we use $20 foot orthoses. In our Dr. Product. Scholes. Yeah, <laughs> we, we use one. We use one by uh, we use a Smenko one that, and I, mm. we don't even you know. Most of them I have people get them from our. There's a wonderful running store here in in Missoula, Runner's Edge. I send them down there, or they can go pick it up if they want. They can go get it off Amazon for whatever. So, um, but that's yeah. Keep it the whole kiss thing. You know, keep it simple, stupid. I think is really really what you want to do. But you know, I think the same thing for like you know any sort of running modification. If you're changing a runner's kinematics, uh, or separate. You know, as you mentioned earlier, symptom modifiers, those are not, those are, I see that stuff like gait retraining and all that stuff. And, and I've done, I've, I've published a lot in that area. I, I see those things as those are adjuncts. You know, that's the adjunct, that's the symptom modifier you're doing. The thing that really matters is that, is that you're, you're trying to change things for that person and for that patellofemoral joint so that you can increase the volume of training that they're doing. It's the extras, it's the, the volume of exercise training that they can do is probably the determinant factor in that person's recovery. Regarding strengthening, do you have preference, we'll say knee joint specifically, because you talked earlier, said if the knee's really hot, just start at the hip. You know, things calm down, they get a little bit more resilient, then you can start loading the knee more. Any preference to closed chain versus open chain, staying within a certain range of motion? You mentioned terminal knee extension on an open chain machine, you know, may not be the best idea right away if they're already kind of hot, but any thoughts on that? exercise selection you're talking about for the quadriceps yeah specifically yeah so the way i would probably do that typically is um and we're talking about like a patient um i I would have them do a lot of hip strengthening initially and then i'd probably start sneaking some quadricep strengthening into the program and um so things like step ups um maybe some mini squats or something like that and and 
try to basically, I, I'm really working, um, thinking that I'm getting the patient to think more about their hips than anything. I don't want them thinking about their knee that much. So we can kind of be a little bit sneaky and applying some load there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, then we're going to start adding in some of uh, some open chain knee extension. And we're going to start off in a, in a deeper knee angle. So 90 degrees to maybe 60 degrees on the open chain, like on a you know, just regular open chain knee extension machine. Um, and then we'll start going into, you know, we really go for a high load, the highest load possible that patient can tolerate. And then over time, we slowly increase that range of motion because eventually that patient is going to need to be able to get back to, you know, full knee extension. We don't want to sit here and say, no, you can't do deep squats. No, you can't do full knee extensions because um, that's important for that athlete. If that person's a, you know, a, a baseball catcher or something like that, they're going to need to be able to get back to that activity. So, um, but at the end of the day, I always come back to how much load can I get on that person? And that's always what I'm coming back to. If I need to do lower load, um, like hardly any load to get up in the upper ranges, that that's fine. I'm going to do, I'll probably do some of those things, but I still need to have some exercise part or some exercises in my program where I'm doing some high load training, because we know, for instance, when you run, uh, the patellofemoral contact force is around four to five body weights of force. And if you're not doing that during your rehab session, if you're not applying some sort of like high load to the patellofemoral joint, you're stress shielding your athlete, that person's going to feel better. Then they're going to go back to their activities. And while their pain not, might, might not come back within the first two to three weeks, it's going to come back probably eventually because you undertreated that person. Well, like you mentioned the leg extension, because you know, as we've seen in the last decade or so, the pendulum has swung on the leg extension in general, kind of like started with ACL land and that's trickled into just all knee things where leg extension is demonized or it's not or, or whatever. But the way that I conceptualize something like a leg extension is that it constrains the load exactly where you want it. Yep. it you A squat is squats, lunges, step up, steps down. Those are fantastic. Also, I'm sure they're part of the plan, but the body can do some things to shield stress away from the affected area that the clinician may not even be able to see. But a leg extension, you're at least, you're as guaranteed to know that the load is going where you want it and at specific angles and, a, you know, specific intensities, those types of things. Would you say, would, would that be part of the rebuttal or what would your rebuttal be to somebody who says, well, leg extension is either not functional or it's not good for the knee in this scenario? Yeah, I would, I would say that it is the most functional exercise you can do for any injury um, because, because you're, you're, you're getting load on the patellofemoral joint and someone who has knee pain or someone, and let's take a, someone who's recovering from an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction, your nervous system is so, so creative that you will, you will offload that knee and that pattern persists. It, it, it doesn't just go away. And so, um, you know, we, we've published on people who are post partial meniscectomy, for instance, and then those folks have learned, uh, and I don't know if it's because of their rehab that they've done or just because of, you know, our own like co- kind of coordination patterns, they, they've learned to offload that knee. And we know too, that the more you offload the knee, the the worse your outcomes are when it comes to uh, knee confidence and and function and so you've got to get um, that person to load that knee a little bit more training them to offload their knee even more by just saying okay we're going to be doing a lot of hip stuff and no real knee things uh, I think that's a bad bad strategy for most people with knee injuries uh, you, you've got to get back in there and and load that area um, I think we we've had a 
you know, I think when you look back and again, I've been a PT for 20 years. And as you said, the pendulum's really swung. We went from like, you know, this whole idea of, of do no harm, which we thought we were doing no harm, but I think we were actually probably doing a lot of harm by, by training people not to load areas. And so, yeah, I would say if you're treating, if you're treating lower extremity athletes, um, you need to have a knee extension machine in your clinic and, uh, you, you can get them, go to Craigslist or something. Oh yeah. All over the place. yeah. Yeah. Super cheap. And I well, actually, uh, you can for testing too. Like if you have a leg extension <laughs> machine, that's got some metal bars, crossbars underneath, then you can have an inline dynamo- dynamometer and, and do some isometric testing there as well. So you, know, you get some assessment mm-hmm. and intervention. Well, let's go back right to what you were talking about with a resisted knee extension being an actual physical indicator of of this whole thing. Why not train resisted knee extension if it triggers symptoms scaled to something that's tolerable so we can build tolerance? It just makes what seems to be the most sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think. I think too, and if you don't have a handheld dynamometer or some sort of dynamometer system in your clinic, the knee extension machine, you, you can still calculate your one repetition max and calculate a limb symmetry index there. Uh, and I think that um, I think that that's a, a super easy thing to do, um, and it should it should be a very important part of your rehabilitation for anybody who has a knee injury and, and most certainly patellofemoral pain. The leg extension is the most functional knee exercise for a knee injury. That's a hot take. <laughs> that's a hot take right there. I'm trying to be a little controversial. Quote, quote, yeah. uh, quote for the Instagrams right there. And it is yeah. too because it's it's like, well, you're just training the quality. You're training the quality that they can then use in whatever particular task. You know, function is just whatever task that you're – what are your goals? You know, what are your activities you want to get back to? Do you have the physical capacity and the qualities to do so? That's what you're developing there. So, Yeah. Well, when, when I, I don't know if you guys know Scott Morrison, but mm-hmm. – uh, He's a good friend of mine and, and we, we chat about this stuff a lot. And like, you know, uh, I don't know, let's take, let's take, uh, Achilles tendinopathy, for instance. I mean, the most functional machine is probably going to be the soleus machine for that. Yeah. And you can just target, you can load so much load on that person. If you're doing like a standing calf raise for someone who has Achilles tendinopathy, the limiting factor is probably not how much you can raise with your plantar flexors, but how much weight you can hold in your hand. And mm-hmm. so it becomes a less functional, um, activity. And so that the isolation, um, we, we, I think we really need to go back and embrace isolation exercises rather than, you know, these, you know, not so functional, functional exercises, direct loading, direct loading. Crazy. So, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think, I think too, I think that I might, I think if you, if you think you're probably, if you think you're doing a good job with this, treating this injury, um, I think you should, I think you should probably question a little bit more so what you're doing, you know, because this is a tricky injury to the telephone pain is super tricky to treat. I've been treating it for a long time. I, I did my dissertation on it. I, I still don't feel super, super confident in my ability to treat people with patellofemoral pain. Every person that comes in is different. Um, I know I have to be super creative for me, a, a, a major, major part of what I'm doing with these folks is how can I keep that person active and running or playing their sport. Mm. And that I spent so much time on that. Um, because I think that the moment you have them stop doing those things, 
Um, it's going to, you can lull yourself into thinking that maybe you're even doing a lot of loading with them in the clinic. Uh, it can lull your, lull yourself into thinking that you're doing a really good job of that patient. But the reality is, is that while you've made, maybe are loading up their patellofemoral joint, their overall training load has come down so much Mm -hmm. that their total number of repetitions, maybe you're doing three sets of 10 or, you know, whatever, four, four sets of six or, and on your knee extension machine. But if they've reduced their overall they're not playing basketball anymore. Their overall training load has come down, you know, a ton. I think what the average basketball player jumps 95 times during hmm. during a game, you know. So you're that's just a small amount of number of the reps. Whereas if you're a runner, you know, you go out and run a if you go out and run seven miles, your average number of foot strikes is you have about 10,000 foot strikes. Um, so four, so to five, four to five times body weight. Four times, yeah, four to five times body weight exactly. So it's important to keep that activity level high so that the patient it's good for their it's good for their psychology but it's also good for you as a therapist to make sure that your treatment is really working and that it's not just because you told that that patient has cut back so much on their training i think that's a mic drop moment rich, <laughs> rich this has been fantastic uh we could get you on the show and and again and talk about a whole lot more stuff because you've done a ton of great work in this realm and others, where can people find you, uh, read more of your work, those types of things? Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks, thanks for saying that first. It's, uh, uh, it's a really nice compliment. Um, we, um, I have a Twitter account. It's, uh, my, my, my Twitter handle is R Willie, W I L L Y. Um, 2003. It's R Willie 2003. We have an Instagram account that, um, we're starting to shift more and more stuff to Instagram. Uh, which I think most people are doing. And our Instagram account is Montana Running Lab. And uh, yeah, we try to keep it, we try to update it. We're somewhat inconsistent. I think you guys do a great job with it, updating your, your Instagram account. But for a while, we, we try to keep it once every one to two weeks as far as updates on there of, of educational stuff. Um, and of course, someone can, can email me at rich.willy at umontana.edu and uh, reference this podcast. That's certainly helpful for me um, because then I can, then I'll, I'll get back to you a lot quicker. Certainly. So, uh, but yeah, those, those are the those are the best places to get a hold of me, for sure. So, if, if people are looking for some quick references on strength training for runners and bone health, go to the Instagram right now because you guys have oh, you, yeah. you've posted some great stuff. Oh, thanks a lot. Page, yeah. Also, do you have a research gate page? Like, if somebody wants to, just kind of a list. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I have a ResearchGate account, and so yeah, just Google that and you'll find it. I also have a Google Scholar account uh, as well. Anything that I can um, make available available publicly should be linked um, to that Google Scholar account, and if not, someone can email me, and, and I'm I'm happy to uh, to share that. Same thing goes with any of the papers that went into the clinical practice guideline. Um, those are all. Uh, if someone emails me, uh, I have all those, and because it's. Uh, you know, peer-to-peer sharing, I can, I can do that as well without, I just can't post them, you know, give a link to the Dropbox where they all are, but I can share some of those if someone's having a hard time finding one of these specific papers. We'll put all those links in the show notes too, so people can, can access that stuff quick. Uh, That'd be awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Of course. Rich, thanks again for being on the show. This was really, really awesome. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. It was a really good conversation, and uh, thanks for having me on. So, our pleasure, man. Absolutely, man. That was a blast. Yeah. Oh, good. Thanks a lot. We'd love to have so, you on the show again in the future. Talk about some future stuff. And uh, Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to. Do see, a case study. Yeah, there you go. 
Same. See where you're at on the revision of this CPG. <laughs> uh, I guess me. But, Ugh, sorry, I, feel like, you, I the, yeah. feel like I saw the hangover from the original. <laughs> but, no, but I enjoyed it. I learned a lot doing it. So, but uh, awesome. Well, thanks again, John, Jared. Thanks for being on as always, and we'll talk next time. Yeah, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. See ya. We'd like to thank Dr. Rich Willie for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to all of Rich's work and the paper that we discussed on this show in both part one and part two. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes all of our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.